Hello to all pioneers, visionaries, and innovators. My name is Yuan Kang. Welcome to Passioners Podcast, a podcast that tells stories of passionate people who inspire us, and hopefully you as well. You might be wondering why I just introduced myself as Yuan. Well, that's because that's my name. So Yuan is my birth and legal first name that I use in classes and formal settings. So don't be confused when Professor Mar, who's today's interviewee, calls me by that name instead of Janice. If you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, follow and rate us. Thanks for supporting us. Timothy Mar is a professor of American Studies at UNC. I took his class called "Birth and Death in the United States" during my first semester. It was an extraordinary class that encouraged me to develop different perspectives about human life. This freshman seminar reaffirmed to me the wonders of higher education in the U.S. In his class, I was able to reflect and ruminate on important concepts with other peers, with the guidance of an encouraging, thoughtful, and intelligent professor. Thanks to this class, I became aware of my mortality, started to see the sacred beauty of human life, and began to cherish the incredible life that I have. It is a true pleasure and honor to have Professor Mar on this episode. I have great respect and admiration for him. If you can't tell already,、um, he encourages students to become creators and artists of our lives by forming our own philosophies, values, and perspectives. So, let's dive in. All right, so we've got the sound on the clean feed, and then we see you here. How's it going, you guys? Happy New Year! Happy New Year! How are you? <laughs> aren't you glad we aren't starting classes this week? They gave us a couple extra weeks. We'll pay for it at the end of the semester. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm grateful for it. <laughs> I know. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to be. I'm glad to be with you, and thanks for reaching out to me. <laughs> Thank me you. Out, bringing me out of my hibernation. So, Professor, my first question for you is: What are some alternative or unconventional choices that you have made in your life that you deem fundamental to your personal development? Yes,、uh, when I was an undergraduate,、um, I ended up、uh, being on a six-year plan. I took a year off after getting admission and went and played hockey in Sweden. And then halfway through, I was getting good grades, but I didn't understand the meaning of education and What it was for, and I took a year off,、uh, a year that I call a year of unlearning, and went to New Zealand and spent a lot of time in solitude,、uh, getting about as far away from things as I could, and、uh, learning an awful lot by unlearning what I had learned before. And those were very important、uh, decisions on globalizing my perspective, and in enabling me to kind of transform a loneliness into aloneness. Which is kind of the basis、uh, that you can build things on,、uh, and I understood during that that、uh, education meant more than getting good grades at a good school, and I didn't know what that meaning was, and I needed to go search for meaning and get away from all the crutches, social and habits, and everything else that I had, and going to New Zealand, which is an incredibly beautiful place where you can spend an awful lot of time. In deep nature, I spent a lot of time alone, hiking、um, many different tracks,、um, spending time walking, walking all night during the full moon when when other people were walking during the day,、um, spending time sitting on a river for three days without eating and without doing anything other than sitting there,、um, things like that, just opening up difference and. The challenge was after that was how do you come back and join up with people again? The new challenge of coming back with that knowledge of having a and reconnecting.、Uh, so it was a very very important very important year, yeah, in my life. So those are a couple things.、Um, uh, I also spent three years in Pakistan uh, after uh, 
after I graduated, I went and got a one-year master's degree in education and taught in public school in California and I met my wife and we wanted to have an adventure and we went and interviewed for international schools. It's a big room in New Orleans and the, the schools were arranged by alphabetical order starting with Abidjan and we ended up getting hired in Lahore, a major city in Pakistan and went there and taught for three years during the Russian phase of the Afghani war and did an enormous amount of exploration uh, in that part of the world. And it was a very powerful way to begin a marriage being on neutral adventurous turf. So those are a couple instances of unconventional shifts that opened up horizons and de-Americanized myself, helped me to understand a little more what it would mean to be to declare interdependence and be a world world citizen. So you mentioned that when you traveled, you kind of decentralized the American mindset from your mind. Um, but then how did you become interested in American studies in particular? Um, because that's what you teach, right? That's a really good question, Claire. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, American identity is what I grew up with. And my parents were were teachers, and we traveled all around the United States when I was growing up. Uh, my dad would teach in summer school, and I think I drove through 46 of the 48 continental states by the time I was 14. And I got a sense of the map and a sense of a broader America, and that was really important for uh, broadening my sense of identity. Um, but there's a limit to national identity. There's a whole world out there that's not American. And that doesn't mean you discount what's American. Perspective is necessary to try to discover what is cultural about America rather than American seeming like it's the only reality there is. So that distance, and especially living in Pakistan, where Pakistan or Americans have very different attitudes towards Muslims, but Muslims didn't. They weren't like the images that I had learned as American, as an American, uh, and that became really crucial for my academic research was studying why Americans had distorted views of Muslims, and I couldn't do that out uh, if I didn't leave the United States. But it helped me understand the limits that Americans had to understanding otherness in the world. Who is your favorite philosopher, psychologist, or author, and why? Well, I think the most influential was um, when I was an undergraduate, I was assigned Moby Dick in an English class at Williams College, and I didn't read it. And the professor didn't take us to where Melville wrote the book, which was only 25 minutes down the road, and I've never forgiven him for it. And when I got to Pakistan, this was before Amazon and, uh, and the internet, um, I went down to the basement of that school to see what books were available for me to teach, and there were copies of Moby Dick. So I ended up teaching that book to Pakistani teenagers, and uh, Melville opened my eyes to all kinds of thi things and learning and depth. He's, uh, he gave me intimacy with another century because his presence in words transcended time, and I could be intimate with him even though he died in 1891. So I ended up looking and uh, looking into Melville and reading as much as I could and ended up going back to graduate school to look at how Herman Melville imagined the Islamic world in his literature. And that became the basis for what I, for what I studied. Melville teaches me, he's a genius and he's a deep philosopher who uses art to open the eyes of people that are ready to dive with him. And uh, uh, so I would say Melville's the most important uh, 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 person and learning that I've done. Occasionally I teach a Melville class, but surprisingly my courses really don't aren't premised upon my expertise. Uh, they're more based on what I think would be useful for people your age to be learning at this stage of your lives. Professor, one of the favorite things that you told us during class was that 
We don't have to double major or triple major and minor to just get the social recognition from university, but simply take the classes we enjoy and have more freedom in choosing the classes that we really want um, that might not be towards uh, getting a specific major or minor. But uh, while I was doing some research, I see that you have graduated from prestigious universities like Williams, Stanford, and Yale. So do you think that social recognition and prestige are important? And what is the line or distinction between good emphasis and heavy and unnecessary focus? It's not the names that do the work for you, but since they're understood, they, they can pave the way for who you actually are. And anybody who's doing their own research, they're going to be recognized for the passion and depth and completeness with which they investigate what they want to learn. And where that happens matters because places support that independence and some places um, have the, the dynamism in the classroom of other people who think deeply together that help you get to that, uh, the thoroughness of knowing that you need to get to to produce knowledge that matters. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a very good question because uh, um, these schools matter to me in what they gave me as a learner. I made the decision to go to PhD, get my PhD from Yale in American Studies because it was the best program in the country. But I didn't get as much uh, financial support as I got at other schools. This was after I applied three years earlier and got in nowhere because I didn't know what I wanted to do then. So perseverance is really the name of the game with any career. You have to persevere through all kinds of tests and trials uh, because it refines your commitment to what you really want to do. But that decision to go to Yale, it allowed, I was 30 when I went back to, for a doctorate and I didn't want to be told what to do. I didn't want to fall into other people's agendas. And they allowed me to pursue my own path of knowledge. And the, uh, the prestige of Yale did open doors for me, and I think it was a worth, uh, worth going there. Um, who knows uh, what happens? It's not so much the prestige of the place, but the connections you make as a result of being in a particular place. Looking for academic jobs, I would have been happy to teach at any university in the United States. And my first job was at Western Connecticut State University, which was like a commuting school, very different. Um, I think every school has fantastic professors. And if enterprising students can seek out and take advantage of opportunities that any of these places offer, which is much more than any person can do in four years, it's just a matter of uh, being open to possibility and seeking out the amazing resources that American education provides. And that really can happen anywhere, anywhere. And it's the fruit of that that opens doors, not the actual place or name of where that happens. That's the matrix. That's the garden. And it's how you dig and plant. Uh, and uh, remember that... Uh, Scratching the soil to put a seed in there is a painful process of dragging a hose through your brain. You have to actually dig and uh, foster uh, knowledge. It's not a passive thing. Too many students are passive. They think that uh, education is, a, is something they get rather than something they seek out and achieve and earn and open up to. Uh, and really, that happens anywhere, and that happens as a result of the person learning more than anything else. That's so insightful. Thank you. I was actually going to ask um, if you had any advice for university students looking to find their path or their passion, um, but I feel like that kind of covers it unless you had anything else that you wanted to add. To be uh, This movement that I mentioned earlier, from loneliness to aloneness, necessitates getting into a situation where, where you have to confront yourself. And usually that's, maybe this is a masculine thing, maybe thing of my generation, but usually that's a, that's a place of solitude. 
and uh, it's hard to find solitude. That even uh, all our all our moments of aloneness are commodified by headphones and connections and talking. It's hard to find that distance and that silence. What Melville called the silent grass-growing mood, in which a person always should write. Um, how do you find that? Um, I think, yeah, going away to college is opening up new terrain and you develop new facets that can't happen in your original hometown. But you really can't do that in North Carolina or in the United States as well if we live in the 21st century where the planetary realities are the real ones and the emergence of a planetary culture is what your generation is has to pr produce, a sense of identity and unity between peoples, a species sense of consciousness that's so crucial for this day and age. And only the most imaginative people can do that in a room at a school. You have to get out and go alone and kick out the crutches. And the real challenge might be to go to a place as humanly different from where you actually are alone if you have the capacities to sustain that challenge and learn from the contrasting ways that other people are being human, uh, that to me is where education is to be found. And I try to simulate that and stimulate that in the classroom. But my real message is blow out the four walls and go alone somewhere and encounter reality for yourself, by yourself, because that's your life. Uh, and there are too many strings, cultural and familial, holding you back from the independence of who you might be. And uh, even the patterns and habits of academic learning hold you back, hold us back from that intense uh, confrontation with being. Gotcha. So just to clarify, when you say solitude, you don't mean going to the mountain and spending the entire time by yourself, but more like going to an unknown place where you're free from the expectation of your parents, friends, and society that you originally come from. I think both of those are part of a process. Uh, and uh, encountering people that you don't normally encounter, often with different languages, different cultural patterns, shake up they this is what you know they show you that the 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 truth that you believe about your own life is in fact the culture that you've been taught and when you learn by exposure to other cultural difference that it's just culture then that's a greater truth uh that there that culture is not truth there are multiple ways of seeing and uh and that is uh that is a powerful aspect of, uh, of truth finding or the search for something that can never be found. Uh, but it certainly unloosens you and levers you away from uh, hab habitual involvement in, uh, in parochial and provincial patterns that can't be avoided if you stay uh, in one place uh, and in one culture. I really think that the transcultural and people that have moved between cultures, sometimes tragically through exile, um, sometimes through privilege, uh, and learned other cultures. The folks who move between cultures are really the harbingers of global culture uh, and parochial culture, only, uh, subsisting in a monoculture, is um, uh, uh, is is going to be uh, overcome by that new global culture of people who are transcultural. And I think education does help that. It can stimulate the vicarious imagination of that difference, but not like it can if you're out there alone relying on yourself in a place where you really don't know what's going on. But it takes courage and privilege and, um, and a certain personality uh, to confront that. Some people would break down, and I'm not encouraging that. Um, <laughs> but breaking down, this is where death comes in, Yoon, that I really think that death is an ongoing experience of life, 
the, uh, you know, uh, in a real sense, every moment is gone. It's already dead. That moment is dead. And there's another one there. This is what you were pointing out in your final paper, Hume, that this sort of uh, living in the present is a, is a really important, powerful way of overcoming death because the present is always there as long as you're living enough to understand that there is a present. And when death happens and you don't understand that, then that's its own presence. Um, that's what I got from your paper, and I think it was a very profound and wise lesson. But there are so many selves that we were before that are no longer living because life is a process. We have to, time dies and is reborn, and uh, our ongoing development of self and identity is transformative. We, uh, we don't want to be the same person 15 years from now than we are right now. And we want to, but what part of ourselves is worthy of surviving that time? I think the quest. And I think the desire to be more and understand more and embrace more and love more is what opens up those new, new selves and is what stays alive at the core of being. So this is actually an off script question, but what you just said reminded me about something that I learned about when reading a play. I can't remember. Oh, it's Time in the Conways. I don't know if you've ever read it, but they were talking about the notion of self and it being not who you are in the moment, but who you have been and who you will be as kind of like a circular, holistic like view of the self. So do you agree with that? Or do you think that self is like who you are in the moment and your past selves are not your current self? I don't know if that makes sense. I'm thinking Matt Maggie Rogers' past life, you know, coming out inside. I'm a historian, so the past matters because it produces the scripts that confine how we live in the present. So we have to understand the past because it writes the present and the, even the sense of freedom and opportunity and choice that we think we have is largely um, written by past patterns. So we have to understand those patterns so that they can be rewritten in the present for for possible futures that can overcome the limits of the past. So yeah, uh, yeah, but the future and the past matters in the present. Um, uh, and the present encompasses them. And in understanding them, we can become better authors of the future and write our own scripts and not be confined um, by the lines that we don't know that the past has laid out for us. We can weave a different story through those lines, something beautiful, something different. That's how, that's how things might get better. The first assignment for your class was writing an essay about when we think the personhood begins. So what's your perspective on when human life begins and ends? I think different, different human lives begin at different times. Genetically, we begin at conception. Um, experientially, we don't begin until we get consciousness. And that's an important beginning as well. And there's all kinds of ones in between uh, uh, that matter. A spectrum that we all wrote out uh, between that. Um, I think that human personhood is a process. of, um, um, And life is that process. And, uh, and that refers to death also, which is the conclusion of that process or the way that it gets transformed into memory that lives in a disembodied way or in other types of bodies where, uh, where uh, the memory of a life lives on. I mean, Herman Melville lives when I read him uh, his, because he put his experience into words that break down distance and create intimacy. And to me, that's a model of, uh, of, of how we can how we can live even if our body is not here uh, by leaving some kind of art behind that still lives with people that engage with it and inspires uh, new ways of seeing. I don't think uh, it's hard. Uh, I think we so, so yes, it's a long process, isn't it? I think the issue uh, that, can't, that comes up most is sort of the belief in an afterlife that I don't want to... Um, I don't want to voice whatever an afterlife might be, and there are multiple ways of defining that, as we're saying, that I don't want to uh, presume 
uh, an afterlife for folks that believe that life is over when the body dies. Um, uh, but I think that that's an important way of being and thinking while one is living. So the way that I engaged that in the class was that I suggested, because this was a class on birth and death, that just as the fetus in the process of being born, which is an incredibly torturous experience of being pushed out of the amniotic sac through um, a pelvis that isn't wide enough to fit uh, and uh, uh, that looks like you're going to be crushed uh, if you're taking the fetus's perspective. And then you come out uh, and all of a sudden your lungs fill with air and uh, you're screaming and then your cord is cut from your mother. That, that, from the fetus's perspective, is the equivalent of death. But it's also the beginning of the life of an individual that couldn't achieve that experience in that confined prior world. And metaphorically, I think it's important to consider whether possibly death is also a relative term implying change that opens up things that we can't understand right now. I don't say that as dramatically, but I think the metaphor points in that direction. When we were in the womb, if, if we were developing lungs and fingers and eyes and senses, yes, you, uh, the fetus can look through the amniotic sac and see some redness through the abdomen of the mother. It's not total darkness, but those capacities are not functional in that world. They're made to function after that world. And I think it's profound and provocative to think about what capacities are we developing in this world that matter, you know, that matter for the long term. I don't, there isn't a clear answer, but it's worth meditating. And I think, uh, I'm glad you confronted your own mortality, because I think that even however painful and anguished and existential that problem is, I think that when you realize that time is limited, then you're born as a philosopher and you start to realize that, uh, that the moments we have matter. They, uh, they matter. They're not, uh, they're not just going to go on forever. Uh, at least our capacity to inflect them the way we can while we're living. We'll no, we'll, we don't know how long that capacity will be there and how that capacity is constrained by all kinds of unfreedoms, even, even the unfreedom that we might call freedom itself. In other words, we might invent freedom as a way of preventing us from understanding the complete ways that we're enmeshed in systems beyond our control, which is why understanding history is important and why being an author of art or of ourselves or, or of the, um, the possibilities that try to, to define us is really important and challenging. And, um, and one thing that I think is worth trying to develop, if that's possible, so a lot of our listeners are tech people, so I think that this question might be good for um, some of them to hear. But um, do you have a view of technological birth and death with the advancement of technology? I guess whatever that means to you. I was thinking like um, your like digital footprint or like who you are online, but I don't know what uh, Yen was talking about when she or like intending with this question. But it's interesting. It's interesting, Claire, how you defined it as a digital footprint, because I think, I think of technological, technological birth as a form of prosthesis that expands our natural body senses uh, beyond uh, the limits that they inherently have, just the way that my glasses uh, uh, allow me to see. So technology 
expands. I have an external hard drive of memory uh, that I can download things onto that I, or I can project myself to you uh, where you where where you are in Raleigh and Charlotte, and we can be together here on this platform. And it's it's a prosthesis. It's this extension of the body, and so it, it gives birth to different kinds of bodies, um, which I think is incredibly powerful. And it shows the power of human ingenuity to do that to overcome the limits of nature uh, and create that. Now, when it comes to the digital footprint. That's very interesting because, I mean, I was thinking the other day, you know, about 100 years ago, uh, Sigmund Freud came up with the notion of the superego as, as an element of our self. And the superego is the should, okay? It's what society says you should be doing. And it's, uh, it's religion and custom and tradition is built in uh, to a way of thinking, it, and it exerts power. On, on how we act and holds people back uh, and also frames belonging in, uh, in ways that create a commonness. Uh, but when I'm thinking a, a hundred years later uh, and this notion of a digital footprint, it seems like uh, that that internal framework has dissolved into a, uh, and technology may be responsible for that, um, David Riesman in the 1950s talked about uh, people being interdirected, which is um, which is the superego, or outer-directed, okay, taking cues from others, defining oneself from the, the energies one gets from the people around one. And I think that's the footprint and the cloud and the likes and the 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 sense of how um, uh, of how we take our sense of self from what's lended to us by the partial attention of others, that that's um, uh, certainly that uh, interferes with solitude because it becomes something, um, FOMO becomes something that, I mean, I see it in my own kids who are just a little older than you all, um, that the idea of going to a restaurant alone and eating a meal at alone would be seen as a sign of social failure. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, if someone saw you, why aren't you with someone else? Why, why aren't you with someone else? Don't you know, have any friends or something like that? Um, that seems crippling in some ways to me. Um, and um, I teach a class called Captivity and American Cultural Definition. And uh, we had a class that looked at um, the way we were captive to social media. And I sat outside uh, the Johnson Center of Undergraduate Excellence for 20 minutes before class. And people were coming in and out of class. And 60% of the people had phones in their hand or were talking on them when they were coming in and out of the classroom to class. It Talk about prosthesis. <laughs> it's part of your body, man. And and the the question would be, um, what are the there are clear benefits with that? We talked about some of them, but what are the challenges of what that does to the self? And does it open up the space to really individuate and to um, reflect and to contemplate, to get the distance to think for oneself, to see with one own see with one's own eyes, which is incredibly difficult to do. And I think it's the definition of what justice is, to see with your own eyes and not through the eyes of others. But how do you develop that if you're only looking at yourself through the eyes of others? That's really challenging. And I think, uh, I think you're going to be seeing a lot more calls for, um, for fast tech, technology fasts, um, uh, you know, a, a week without a week without the phone, at least you don't have to register Snapchat every day to keep up your record and stuff like that. Um, uh, 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 things that used to, but it's it's uh, it's a, it's a form of um, cultural addiction, I think. I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> I think it's interesting how we all interpreted the same question differently. When I drafted the question, I thought more on the line of literal technological birth and death. 
technologies that would give humans the ability and control to begin and end lives. For example, ectogenesis for birth and cryonics for death. Crocodiles, jellyfish, and turtles are known to be amortal. That is, they usually don't die because of old age, but because of other external causes. So I guess my question now is, what is your stance on these technological developments giving humans the ability to control birth and death? Ectogenesis has to do with being born outside of a womb and not needing the mother's biology to be gestated. And I think that may come about. The other end of life um, has to do with this notion of the connectome in some ways, that, uh, that we have a neural complex neural pathway of experiences marked physiologically into our brains. And I'm not an expert on this, but that that, uh, that history of neural patterns produces in some ways our experience or under subtends it. Um, and if there was a way of uploading the neurology of that complexity, um, could some kind of individuality be, be preserved? It certainly wouldn't be fully embodied experience because I think the body informs how we know. And uh, just the brain's patterns, how would it learn something new other than circling back on the patterns that already existed? Um, uh, but as a way of preserving some kind of experience, I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, um, but it certainly won't be full knowledge in the way that we know it. It'll be um, a refraction um, of a way of being uh, and not being itself. Um, you know, even if Ted Williams's head that's there and being cryonically preserved could be put back onto a body, okay, and he could be reanimated. Would that would that brain in a younger body allow him to hit 400 uh, uh, in a baseball game? I think I think that relies on something much more than the brain. It relies on the time period he lived in, uh, the cheering of the audience, the the, neuro, the memories of the body, and being able to habitually swing in that way that. Uh, it wouldn't be the same Ted Williams uh, because it wouldn't be his body. It would just be uh, his brain. But we're talking speculatively here. But speculation is a form of confabulation that matters because it helps us to uh, figure and frame the possibilities of the present. Just to note back to what we were talking about with the phone addiction, I am so horrible. I really, every time, and it seems every time I start to like, get better with my phone addiction it i'll just fall back into the pattern it's so bad and i really want to change that this year i don't don't diss on yourself i mean there's so much <laughs> connection that happens and um well, i yeah, think there's uh, so many great things but one interesting thing claire <laughs> one interesting i'm teaching this class this spring called mating and marriage in america uh and um um, the majority of Americans are single now because um, a lot of the stigmas against uh, uh, against uh, extramarital sex and uh, and other such is are no longer there. Um, and um, people can feel connected in a way that don't require sort of the cocoon of intimacy that that a couple provides. And I really wonder, I really wonder what it's doing. To uh, to interpersonal intimacies uh, when there when there when there's all these screens between the people uh, and confusing the people and uh, uh, and uh, different selves that are are being projected to different people through those screens and what it does to the intimacy between two people it's a real interesting question for the future. That is interesting. And yeah, in relationships in the past, I've like fallen victim to thinking of them as how they're portraying themselves on the internet and in life, but like not fully the way that they are in life. And I think that that has been like partially why those relationships like haven't worked out, if that makes sense. Even though I think solitude's important, I don't think we're we're meant to be single in any way. We're collective social beings, and I think in some ways, um, 
in some ways, we need to love more people uh, in, in multiple different kinds of ways and not be restricted uh, to, uh, to the selves that we project through technology or through uh, uh, the most important relationships, which are the monogamous ones. Um, that I think there are all kinds of dimensions of engagement that we need to have with all kinds of other people that we're not having. Uh, and I think those patterns and habits limit limit the possibility of, of greater connection, which is what's needed to create the this global community that we are actually already are a part of, but need to make it work better. So I guess this is another off um, script questions. I think we were going off script quite a bit in this interview because so many interesting topics come up. But um, do you think the rate of marriage will decrease? Like more and more people will begin to feel that they don't need to be legally bound by marriage in the future? It seems to be doing that. But there's also so much importance in marriage and it's such a central matrix and fortress for well-being because the learning that can happen in intimacy over time with another person through all the changes of growth that those two individuals go through creates a social reality that can't be produced in any other way, I don't think. And there would be a big loss if it wasn't there. But you think it's fundamentally a monogamous relationship. Is this biological or a social construct? Are we meant to have a long-lasting relationship with one person or perhaps with more than one partner at the same time or in different periods of life? Generally, what's your stance on, on this topic? Well, there are different natures of relationships. Um, I don't think it's possible to be just uh, uh, two, two spouses. Uh, uh, I think that's, what, that's the power of the dyad, is that there's, a, there's an energy between two individuals that work their destinies out together. And if it's three, it just becomes a different situation. Um, people try that. Um, uh, and, um, and there's a loosening of that, of that tradition. There's no doubt about that. But how loose can it go? I mean, in this marriage class, we have a session where we look at um, digital sexuality, where we look at um, AI and sex robots. And this notion of if you can be physically satisfied with technology, um, does that mean, is that a, a legitimate relationship? And is it fulfilling? Those are interesting questions. Um, but I would say just as the fetus who's born through ectogenesis outside of the mother, there's something about that skin and that connection and that body and those hormones and the blood and the feeling and the emotion of connection um, that uh, that's that's special and I that's special and uh, and important and necessary. Uh, so no matter how much we might be, and in some ways, the more in solitude and independent we are as individuals, the more deeply we can connect with the reality of another unique person. I really believe that, that solitude doesn't take away. It allows the depth that enables connection. In class, when I was researching about the concept of regret, I read about how we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves for having regrets because all of us have regrets in our lives. If we beat ourselves because we have regrets, they become obstacles in moving forward and hinder us from, from living in the present, which may lead to more regrets. Um, and additionally, because it's such a universal thing that we have regrets, having regrets are evidence that we are alive. 
I mean, if you're dead, we won't have regrets. So what's your stance on, on regrets? Is having regrets good or bad? I think regrets is a past-focused way of thinking, okay? It's a reflection on a past. Um, and where that matters is how does it affect the present and the future? And I think regrets can be crucial historical lessons that to the degree that remorse is confronted, it can actually produce the conditions that might prevent that mistake from happening again. Uh, the degree to which we have no regrets, uh, uh, I'm thinking of the 1970 movie and novel, A Love Story, which is saying, love, uh, love is never having to say you're sorry. Okay, no sorry, not being sorry, it's the same thing. I think that that's part of a necessary reflective process of how the present deals with the past and produces a different future. And uh, to the degree that we get caught in remorse and regret and sorrow is the degree to which we're, we're, we're confined and uh, captured by the past and it's taking over our present and it's, um, well, neurotic and unhealthy. Uh, but I think it's equally neurotic to be blithely think that everything we did in the past, we should have no regrets or remorse or sorrow for, because it's, uh, it's that reflection that produces different possibilities for the future. And then I think this is probably our last big question. Um, thank you so much again for your time. Um, but with everything going on in the world, all the noises, all everything, um, what is your advice or your like internal philosophy to how to approach getting a successful life, like the life that you want, that you won't regret? That's such a huge question, Claire. And I think that I think that's what every person has to work out with the patterns of how they act. Um, I think openness to something, openness to being lost, that being lost is a condition that allows you to be found. That if you don't get lost, you'll stay in the same place and that may not get you anywhere new. So we're so anxious about losing our bearings. But in reality, when we get lost, the circumference of our experience adapts and our capacities grow. I learned a lot during the interview, just like I have always did during his class. Here are my learning points. First is about regret. Regret is a double-edged sword. If I'm developing and growing, regret is inevitable because it's a sign that I'm changing. In that sense, it's uplifting and hopeful. But it can also go the other way, where regret becomes a past-focused way of looking at my life, and obstacles that stop me from moving forward. Second is about privilege. Privilege is a humbling feeling, knowing that who I am, where I am, and what I've done are not because of the effort of myself alone, but are shaped by many external forces. However, privilege should not be a guilt trip of my accomplishment, which is hard sometimes because there's so much inequality in the world and the amount of privilege that someone um, needs to have to be able to go to university in the US is huge. It's not an opportunity that many have. But I don't need to feel guilty for my privileges, but be thankful for them and use them as fuels to propel myself forward and help others. Third is about prestige. Every day we are swirled with opinions and information by different media. There are a lot of messages out there that say choosing jobs, organizations, or institutions based on their prestige are superficial. Whereas there are other messages that say that those are the things that we should focus on. I know some people who feel guilty for wanting to look pretty, wanting to go to a good university, prestigious university, wanting to become rich, 
because they had been told that they are superficial and they shouldn't pursue those things. When I was young, I was told that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. But I think it's human nature to want to be appreciated, approved, and confirmed by society. So wouldn't it be simpler to just accept that we all want to forge better lives and start embracing our desire and work towards them with determination and perseverance than feeling guilty for wanting those things? Because I think in the deep down, I don't know, I feel like all of us want those things to gain self-respect and freedom. For example, financial freedom, because we get to choose what we want to do with our time, and freedom uh, from asking endless what-if questions, and what if I, I tried the same, what if I went for it, and freedom from living doubts and regrets. The fourth is about age. Nowadays, there's more ageism, especially in Western culture. I think many people fear aging. I mean, I do too. We are sold on the ideas by the media and advertisement to look younger and sustain youthful looks. Youth and physical vitality are glorified, while old age and intellectual growth, not so much in social media. Looking at Professor Marr and other philosophers that I admire, I have more respect, desire, and less fear in aging. I never want to be static. I want to continue to evolve embrace the confusion, and grow. I believe Professor Marr is an exemplification of that. I want to end this episode with one of my favorite quotes by Confucius. We have two lives, and the second begins when we realize we only have one. To learn more about Professor Marr and other passioners we have interviewed in this podcast, and to see behind the scenes of how we create each of our episodes, Follow our Instagram at Passioners Podcast. Thanks, Professor Marr, for sharing your wisdom with us. This episode is written, edited, and produced by Ewan King and hosted by Claire Hems and me. Mike Garcia and I are co-hosts of the podcast. Claire Hems is our social media director. Lana Hatsiomanovic is our illustrator. Fernando Garcia is our web designer. We use original music by Chia Passioners Podcast tells the stories of passionate people and their journeys. My name is Yoon Kang. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>